Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you back, Jim. As you know, uh, everybody, we took a week off over the last seven or eight days. No podcasts, a couple of blogs on the Substack site. But Jim has been away, and I don't know whether he's going to be too comfortable talking about it, because I suspect, without knowing, that he's got something of a reaction from his neighbours in Dublin. But Jim, welcome back. And can you just begin by telling us a little bit about your experiences of international travel, the first, I presume, in a very long time? Yeah, Chris, uh, it was my first time off the island of Ireland since November 2019. And that was on a trip, a business trip to Brussels. So um, on the 19th of July, which was the day that the COVID travel certs were introduced, um, I decided to go to Portugal for a week and uh, down to the Algarve, um, a quite pretty remote area. Um, certainly not one of the places that's regarded as a hotspot like Albufeira or up north in Lisbon. But um, I, I, I'm doubly vaccinated. So um, I decided for reasons of sanity as much as anything else that I need to get off the island. And um, where better than to... Um, do it down in the Algarve, which I, I love anyway. But uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. The, the whole experience was great. Um, the going through Dublin Airport was really good, was really smooth, um, provided you had your documentation uploaded, everything was in order, your locator form filled up and so on. 
um, it went very, very smoothly. Um, flew Ryanair to uh, Faroe Airport, which was an incredibly pleasant experience. Um, and then on the way back, Faroe was a little bit more complicated because you just had to duplicate some of the stuff at different checks. But it was, it was still, it was a fine experience. Um, I felt totally safe um, on the way and down there. Absolutely no issues and uh, really enjoyed it. And um, if I got an opportunity to go again tomorrow morning, um, I actually would. But I think the interesting thing is uh, the, the sort of reaction, I haven't told too many people, but the, the reaction to people to traveling generally at the moment, um, I find extraordinarily difficult to understand. Um, and indeed, the attitude a lot of people have to dining indoors at the moment is also, I find it very difficult to understand. Um, some restaurants, as you know, have decided for reasons of safety that they're not going to reopen their in indoor dining. And um, some people are applauding that as the safe and sensible thing to do. Um, the whole purpose of vaccination, and I've had double vaccination, the whole purpose is to get back to some semblance of normality. So, um, you know, get to live our lives again. And that's exactly um, what I, I did over the last week. And it, it was great, as I say. But pe people um, are a bit funny about it. And um, you, you kind of uh, want to keep it as quiet as possible. But the, the interesting thing was... Um, the Algarve, particularly over the last few days before I came back, um, you could see the Irish people uh, starting to come in there in their droves. And indeed, Ryanair, um, their latest results, uh, the narrative accompanying those results, suggesting that bookings are picking up quite dramatic, dramatically on all their routes, but particularly um, out of Ireland. So uh, it's good, a sense of normality. So it's really good. But um, you said the two of us took a week off. You actually didn't. Um, I noticed over the last few days you posted a really interesting piece on um, equity markets and stock market investment in general. And um, I didn't see in social media any sort of reaction to the article. It seems to have just sort of fallen there and, 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 and lay there without a lot of response. And I, I was thinking about that. And I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to, to give your view on it in a second. But it, it struck me that... Um, I like the article because it was very balanced. Um, it was not trying to create a narrative to explain what is or what is not going on at any particular point in time. And um, I think there was a lot of really sensible fundamental principles of investment in there. Uh, but I suspect that actually doesn't go down well with a lot of people because they want people to tell them where the markets are going. They're going up, they're going down. Why are they going up? Why are they going down? Uh, likewise with house prices, anything else. And of course, between us, we have quite a few years of um, economics experience and market experience. And I think the one thing we should have learned, we did learn, I know, a long, long time ago, is that forecasting the future um, is a waste of time anyway. So I like the balance piece. But uh, as I say, um, I'm not sure it'll go down terribly well with a lot of people who are looking for answers. Before I hand back to you, um, in the context of equity markets and what's going on, um, you know, you, you talk about what's happening in Europe, you talk about the FTSE, you talk about the record highs being attained in the United States again in recent days. But it's really interesting over the last few days, um, last Friday, um, the US listed Chinese stocks, um, the so-called NASDAQ Golden Dragon Index, which is an index of 98 of China's largest 
US listed companies fell 7% yesterday, fell 8% last Friday because um, Beijing is basically cracking down on the technology sector. And over the last few days, the latest um, nail in the coffin was that the there's been an overhaul of the education sector. And basically, they're ban- banning firms in that sector from making profits, from raising capital or from going public. Uh, quite extraordinary stuff. And over five months, um, US listed Chinese stocks have lost $769 billion in value. Quite extraordinary. The Chinese story is fascinating, and I'll come back to that in a second. But thank you very much for your kind remarks about my article. But you're spot on. It was put out there. I, if I say so myself, was quite pleased with it, because in a way it was a distillation of that many decades of experience. And the story was a very simple one. It began with observing how many market professionals, commentators, analysts are describing the US in particular, global asset prices generally, particularly equities, as being in a bubble. And I quoted a very famous commentator, Jeremy Grantham, as saying that this is the biggest bubble of all time. And it's much bigger than, for example, the one than the one that preceded the great 1929 stock market crash. And I talked a lot about how people explain stock market movements, the narratives, the stories that people who are paid to do this come up with, and how most, if not all of those narratives, usually are false. They're wrong. And the way in which that can be done in a very simple way and the ways in which that can be done from a very complicated mathematical fashion. Essentially, having concluded that most of the stories um, are false, I put out there, honestly, I've no idea whether the US is in a bubble or not, although I acknowledge that on the way we conventionally measure these things, because we have lots of measures of valuation, the US stock market does look, indeed, it looks very overvalued, but how that gets corrected could be done in a number of ways. And I distilled some simple investing principles for um, all of us uh, who, who don't have access to super sophisticated, mathematically driven hedge funds. And I talked a bit about the, the very, very important uh, factors for people like us of both time and diversification, stuff like that. And as you say, it landed out there. It is probably one of our least read, least popular pieces. And in some ways, I'm not surprised by that. I've had many years writing experience, and I know that what I find interesting, often a lot of other people don't, and vice versa. I've written pieces for newspapers and other outlets over the years that um, I didn't think were in the least bit interesting. But uh, as, as the saying goes, they, they went viral. A little humility as a writer, was, was, I, was, I learned that lesson a long time ago. But I think you're spot on. I do think that because we're bombarded with those narratives, those those stories about markets going up, going down, and that's what people, A, expect, and they don't respond well to be told that those stories are generally false. And what people want more than anything else is to be told which numbers are going to come up in the lottery. When I say that you can't do that, it is just not possible given the state of our knowledge, I don't think people react well to that. That's, I think, a decent hypothesis. People weren't interested, they aren't interested, and they prefer the narratives. And that's why there are thousands of people out there earning lots of money supplying the narratives. There aren't very many people employed by investment banks, stockbrokers, newspapers, who write articles saying, well, I don't really know, which essentially was what I was saying. You mentioned China, and I think that that's another one of those stories that people may not be that interested in. It's far away. 
the headlines that you described there very accurately are going to be confined to the business pages. But for all sorts of reasons, I would argue everybody should be really interested in what's going on, not just because it affects everybody's investments in anything related to this stuff. And one way or another, we're all invested in this via our pension funds or other savings, because these have been big moves in markets. In the first instance, if it continues, I think it could have an impact on markets closer to home, including those in in Ireland and the UK. And secondly, I think there are political implications of this that could come back to bite us. As you say, China has taken a sledgehammer, and that's no exaggeration, to its tech and education sectors, two quite distinct sectors. And it's spilt over to Hong Kong, obviously part of China, but a distinct stock market. The Hang Seng Index, which is the Hong Kong Index of Equity Prices, has had two days of 4% plus falls. These are big moves. The, the China index of, of mainland Chinese shares last night fell, our time, 3.5%. That's a big one-day move. Individual companies are showing the biggest falls ever or the biggest falls in 10 years or more. There's a big Chinese company called Tencent, which is just enormous, absolutely huge. It's a tech conglomerate. It's the world's largest video game provider. It's one of the world's largest social media companies. It does venture capital and it does investment. It does music, web portals, e-commerce, payment systems, smartphones, and online gaming. And this company has stakes in over 600 other companies around the world. Um, and that's just one of the companies that, that's been hammered. As you say, the, the benchmark index, the thing that we look at for Chinese tech stocks, is now down over 15% in two days. Back in March, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, um, talked about the education sector as being private tutoring is a sector which is a chronic disease. Now, in China, an awful lot of kids get tuition outside school, which parents pay for. And it's clear that the Chinese Communist Party wants to exert some kind of ideological control over education. The tech sector, which is the other sector that that, that Xi Jinping is having a go at, the first big sign of the crackdown came last December. And that's when somebody called Jack Ma, who is uh, China's equivalent of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, he was doing an IPO of one of his companies called Ant Financial. That that was cancelled. IPO stands for Initial Public Offering. He was floating his company to raise some money. And after that cancelled flotation, the company was dismembered by China. And Ma owns another company uh, called Alibaba, which some of you may have heard of, which essentially is China's version of Amazon. So in in some ways, the best description of Jack Ma is that he's like uh, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, but in a Chinese context. And that company has also been in the firing line. And Jack Ma disappeared for a long period of time, actually. And Lord knows what was actually happening during this period. The Chinese Communist Party has described this in terms of the rectification, is the, is the trans, English translation of this new China policy. Um, it's fined Tencent, that company that I mentioned, and other companies like Baidu. Many people will have heard of TikTok. The owners of that company have also been targeted. It presented analysts with something of a mystery because nobody expected it. Uh, nobody forecast this. So some people have asked, is it just a version of what the US and the European Union are up to with its policies towards tech? You might know, of course, that various fines have been administered to to companies and there's lots of chatter, not just about tax, but about regulatory, anti-competitive, antitrust stuff. So is this just antitrust, anti-monopoly thing going on that's mirrored in the West? 
I think it's different, because, not least because the US and the EU have been having a go at individual companies. Um, with one or two big, one or two exceptions, China's having a go at the whole sector. Um, and that, that's a big difference. With, and I say there is one notable exception, which provides you, as, I think, a clue as to what's going on. Huawei, a company that's been in the news a lot in the West, has not been targeted and indeed is, is doing quite well. And of course, Huawei is thought to ha- be very entwined with the Chinese military. Now, it could well be that the Chinese Communist Party thinks, like a lot of us here in the West, that consumer tech, and I, I stress that word consumer technology, companies like Facebook and Twitter produce nothing of real value and that the profits, the giant profits that companies like Facebook in particular make are just what economists would call rents extracted from consumers. They don't represent real economic value. Now, um, you could add Tencent to that list of companies that maybe the Chinese think don't produce net productivity gains for the economy. Playing video games is not what Xi Jinping wants China's young people to do. And Xi has long had an industrial policy that has many different dimensions. But I think that his industrial policy is now being redesigned to set the Chinese nation in a, in a it's probably an exaggeration, but I'll, I'll say it just to make the point, on a war footing, um, hopefully just a cold war. Um, it's not just about boosting overall productivity growth, which is what would happen if they were just being motivated by productivity concerns. It's about boosting technological prowess where it counts militarily. Xi Jinping doesn't want economic growth for its own sake, which is what most Western policymakers want. They just want growth. They don't particularly care very much where it comes from. He wants it where it enhances Chinese power, Chinese military power and Chinese political power. The two obviously overlap. And taking control over education is complementary to that. It's complementary to smashing consumer technology. Now, of course, these are all hypotheses. We don't actually know why he's doing what he's doing. And I don't think he's indifferent, completely indifferent to overall growth. He can only do something like this, which in the short term, at least, is growth negative. You know, shutting off the supply of capital to these companies, they won't grow. They will shrink. It is growth negative. And he can only play that game for as long as overall growth in the Chinese economy is doing well, which it is. The risk he's running, of course, is that foreigners will just pull out even more money than they have done over the last few days. And it's been huge, as you say. The flows have been enormous out of Chinese equities and Chinese-related equities over the last few days. And if those capital taps are turned off, that will be growth damaging. So this, is, I think, has got a long way to run. I think it's got huge political consequences. And if China is waging some kind, getting ready to wage some kind of stepped-up Cold War with the West, then I think we're all in for a bit of difficulty. So this one, I think, is something that you and I are going to have to watch very carefully and come back to. So let's leave China for now for something completely different. I know that we've had some economic news out only today, which in some senses is quite historic, and it's about the dual nature of the Irish economy. The data published today was called Gross Value Added, And I'll talk about the breakdown of that in a second. But first, I think it is important to explain what we mean by gross value added. So there are, as we've discussed in numerous podcasts in relation to Irish economic activity, there's many different metrics we use to measure what's going on in the economy. So the classic one is gross domestic product GDP. Um, That's the total value 
of goods and services produced in an economy in a given time period. And GDP is measured after including product taxes such as VAT, well, non-deductible VAT and excise duties and deducting any product subsidies that are built in. So that's gross domestic product. Gross value added is measured prior to adding product taxes, but it includes product subsidies. Okay, so it's basically stripping out the tax element of GDP um, and including subsidies. And just to push, um, I suppose, a numerical context on this, in 2020, the value of gross domestic product was 377 billion. The value of gross value added was 354 billion. So the net difference between the taxes is, you know, roughly 23 billion or thereabouts. And then, of course, the other measure that we spoke about, I think, in our last podcast before I went away, was gross national income star. And last year, that was 208 billion. So that gives a little bit of context. So gross value added, that was the number that was um, the breakdown of that was published today by the Central Statistics Office. And as I say, the total value of gross value, 354 billion. But the breakdown of that um, is, as as is typically the case, uh, the multinational and the rest of the economy. The multinational sector um, was worth 186 billion in gross value added. The rest of the economy, that's the indigenous enterprise sector, its gross value added 168 billion. And that the significance of that is that is the first time in our history that the gross value added from the multinational sector actually exceeds the rest of the economy. So that is very significant. And one of the explanations for that is that in 2020, and we have spoken at great length on numerous different economic indicators uh, about the dual nature of the Irish economy since March 2020 and the advent of the COVID crisis. But last year, the non-multinational sector, that's the indigenous economy, basically gross value added contracted by 8.7%, whereas for the multinational sector, it expanded by 23.1%. So a really, really strong performance from the multinational sector. And of course, that's evident in our export data. For example, last year, we had an incredibly strong performance from the chemical and pharmaceutical sector. Obviously, the that the service, the multinational service providers like Facebook, Google, you know, continuing to generate a lot of value in the economy. So um, today's number is very definitely historic, um, reflecting the very dual nature, as I say, of the Irish economy and particularly reflecting the very dual nature of the economy in terms of economic performance since the COVID crisis happened in March 2020. So it just goes to prove once again um, the growing significance of the foreign owned multinational sector in the Irish economy. And of course, in that context, international corporation tax developments are really important with the move towards a minimum corporation tax rate um, and the other proposed changes such as taxing profits where the economic activity occurs rather than where the balance sheet resides. So these um, corporation tax changes that we've spoken about, they do have implications for um, the multinational sector here in Ireland. We're not sure yet the magnitude of those implications because we don't know exactly yet 
what exactly is going to be decided and when it's going to be decided. But definitely in terms of the list of risk factors for the Irish economy, corporation tax developments definitely um, is up there. Okay, And the, the importance and the risk posed by that is certainly exemplified here again today with those gross value added numbers. So um, I- interesting stuff. Yeah, the of course, um, that might raise all sorts of questions, which I don't think we should cover here about whether or not that's a good thing. This this nature of the unbalanced economy, I know a lot of economists think it isn't, uh, whether or not these this is a one off or whether this trend will continue and a gap will open up between uh, the two sectors um, in favour of the international sector. But given how dependent that international sector is on US companies, there was some good news out from the IMF today, which therefore must be good news for Ireland, one would presume. They've raised their GDP forecasts for the United States, particularly next year. World output, world GDP growth this year will be 6%. So that's an awful lot of economies, particularly in the advanced world, particularly in the United States, getting back to pre-COVID levels at least very quickly. It'll be more subdued next year with a 4.9% rate of growth for the world, but that's still pretty healthy. Certainly anything pre-pandemic at 4.9, we would we would have been very, very happy with. But the US is now expected to grow this year by 7% and, and lead the world or be the same as the world at 4.9% next year. The IMF has not changed its forecasts very much since the last time it produced them back in the the late spring, but it is pointing out that the world is becoming more divergent in the sense that all of this extra growth that it thinks is coming over the next while is going to be heavily dominated by developed countries, not least the United States, but also ones closer to home, and that the emerging and developing world is actually, they actually reduced their forecasts. And that's mostly a story about vaccines, actually. The countries that have done the most vaccines are the ones that are growing the most. So um, that's quite an interesting development from the US. But again, something to perhaps worry us in the sense that it, it, it talks about vaccine inequity. All of the advanced economies, well, almost all are moving towards normalization, as the IMF describes it, driven by the vaccine rollout, and that those countries who face resurgent infections are the ones that are going to suffer economically. And there's there's no rocket science there and just shows the extent to which the vaccine rollout um, is an absolute game changer, which is which is really good in one sense, but it does highlight a big global issue about rising inequality and what that um, ultimately results in. Um, from an Irish perspective, um, you know, it, obviously, if the US economy is doing well, that means US companies will continue to expand and invest overseas. One would have thought that's positive, notwithstanding the caveat about the corporation tax changes. But um, you said there uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, some people would regard this concentration risk as bad news for Ireland, others um, less so. Um, I think, you know, the the concentration risk is what it is. You know, multinationals employ 258,000 people here directly, over 200,000 indirectly, an incredibly important part of our economy. And long may that continue. But I think the policy implication from this is that we really do need to make sure that we pursue every possible avenue to make sure that we try and balance that concentration risk. In other words, we really do need to increasingly focus on the indigenous economy, particularly 
the SME part of the economy, just to find out why many of those companies and sectors are struggling, why their productivity performance is so far behind, you know, why it is proving so difficult for small companies to become medium and then large, because there are very few examples in this country that I can think of, of companies that have gone from the S part of SME um, to become large companies, few exceptions, but, you know, there's lots of challenges there. And the message for policymakers very definitely is we do need to um, adopt, I think, a much more micro approach to addressing the specific problems that the SME sector is actually facing here because it is an incredibly important source of employment. Over 99% numerically of the companies we have here are SMEs. 68% of employment in the business economy is in the SME sector. So um, I, that's the message I would really take out of this whole um, debate and questioning of that concentration risk issue. Uh, but you know, it just goes to show, looking at what the IMF was saying today, just how important um, the vaccine rollout program is. And, you know, very disturbing um, stories coming out of Bangkok at the moment, for example, about infection rates rising dramatically there again. So many problems in many parts of the developing world, uh, which will cast, I think, a huge dark shadow over the world for the foreseeable future until those problems are addressed. I think we'll come back to COVID corner in a second. Um, I just wanted to talk about one thing that we've mentioned so many times on this podcast before. The IMF repeated its belief that inflation, as we're seeing it in the world at the moment, is temporary. And it's just related to this initial surge in growth that we're seeing as economies come out of the pandemic. But today we've had housing in the United States, house prices, the fastest growth in 17 years. Um, in the UK, we've had house price data today up 7.3% year over year. And I was reading somebody's summary. Uh, if anybody's interested, it's a Twitter account called The Long View, in which they provided a very good summary of uh, earnings season, because this is the time in the quarter where US companies report their profits for the last three months. We've got some big ones coming out over the next few days. And the summary goes as follows. Backlogs are still growing. Inventories are low. Commodity price rises are hurting margins. Most companies plan to raise prices to deal with those hurting margins. Growth still looks good, but supply chain bottlenecks are still a pain. And that, that seems to be quite common. And it sort of sets us up nicely for the Fed, who has to deal with this, in particular, this inflation. It has a two-day meeting this week. And it's not expected to do anything particularly dramatic, although we think that they will turn up the volume a little bit about talking about talking about tightening policy or at least not providing quite so much accommodation. But there are some very big questions, I think, that should be asked of the Fed, particularly. And this is a quite a geeky point and we won't explore it here. But one of the many things that it's buying, one of the many ways in which it's printing money is it's buying something called mortgage backed securities in the States. And lots and lots of commentators are starting to ask, why? Why are you trying to boost the housing market? Because that's what buying mortgage-backed securities presumably is aimed at when housing is already booming. And more generally, you could say the whole economy. I mean, the auto sector, very important sector still for the US economy, would be booming as well if it wasn't for the chip shortage, which has got nothing to do with 
nothing really to do with the pandemic and is nothing really to do with the Fed. So lots of questions starting to be asked of the Fed. And I think that if it's not at this meeting, the August Jackson Hole meeting, which is a big, big event in central bank calendars, should provide more light on this. So we will come back to this. But seeing as you're back, I know you're not jet lagged from uh, your travels, Jim, but um, as a coffee drinker, you might, uh, on, on this inflation theme, be surprised to learn that coffee prices on Monday, only yesterday, reached their highest level in the futures market since 2014. There's a frost in Brazil, apparently. So mind your eye on your morning cup of Java. Um, now let's turn to COVID corner. And I just want to uh, say two quick things in the time that's available to us. There's first of all, arithmetic. People are getting very confused about people turning up in hospital with uh, being doubly vaccinated and what that means for efficacy. And I'll tell you what's happened here in the UK and why people are confused. I'll spend a minute doing just some very simple arithmetic. Conduct a thought experiment where the vaccines had zero efficacy. They don't work. Then for every 100 people turning up in hospital, um, you would expect the proportion of vaccinated to unvaccinated to be exactly the same as it is in the population. So let's assume you've, you've, you've vaccinated 90% of your adults or 90% of your population with at least one dose, as they have in the UK. I've rounded it just to keep it simple. And 10% have not. If the vaccines didn't work, you'd expect 90 people to be turning up in hospital for every t- uh, that are jabbed for every 10 that are not. What's actually happening is that, f- roughly speaking, 40 people out of those 100 are turning up in hospital having been vaccinated and 60 are not vaccinated. And people have recoiled with horror at that figure of 40. How can so many of, out of 100 be turning up um, vaccinated and still very sick? And the answer is, is that you've reduced 90 to 40. Now, and it's two ratios that are important. So please, I hope your heads don't spin at this. 90-10 is the first ratio and 40-60 is the second ratio. And what you have to do is compare those ratios to each other to get at efficacy. And what those numbers actually mean via some simple arithmetic is the efficacy of the vaccine in keeping people out of hospital is 93%. So don't be alarmed when large numbers of people or seemingly large numbers of people turn up in hospital who've been vaccinated, the vaccines still work by simple arithmetic. And we are pretty sure at the moment with all the variants that we know about here in the UK, that the vaccines are keeping people out of hospital with an efficacy rate of about 93%. That's what the maths, that's what the arithmetic actually says. The second thing I wanted to say about the vaccines in the UK context was that there's this huge mystery over why over the last few days, the numbers have suddenly collapsed. They've gone from about 60,000 to about 24,000 on Monday last. Um, Obviously, they come out on a daily basis and will change as this podcast comes out. But a lot of people um, are confused by this. A lot of scientists say it's a mystery. We have a list of suspects, but that's all it is. And in a way, it's a bit like the narrative with the stock market. People are searching around for explanations of a number that they don't really understand why it's done what it's done. People are thinking that maybe the weather's played a role. People are outside rather than inside. It's been good weather in the UK up until relatively recently anyway. The end of the Euros, and that means that people weren't congregated in pubs and in their front rooms. Um, And it's also the case that the vaccines, as I have already mentioned, are working. But nobody forecasts this. It's one of those numbers that were not forecast. So another important marker about not not, uh, 
paying too much attention about forecasts. It is a bit of a mystery, but it is a hope that something good is happening. Um, people don't know if it's the start of a trend or whether it'll go back up again because we haven't had the effects from the 19th of July reopening. But it is it is a good thing. How's it going in Ireland, Jim? What's your view of the numbers that you've seen since you've been back? Uh, well, yeah, the, the, the numbers here have, have increased significantly, um, not to the extent that was predicted, but particularly um, the hospitalisation levels are still remaining pretty low. Um, they're rising a little bit, but given the rise we're seeing in infections, uh, you might have expected hospitalizations and ICU particularly to increase more significantly. Uh, so it's it's clear that the vaccines are definitely working here also. And um, in fact, you know, we've been, well, sorry, I've been critical um, going back quite some time to some of the approach to COVID in this country. But the one thing we really have got on top of over the last month, particularly, is the vaccine program. And um, we're now moving down the age groups rapidly. And there's, I think they announced today that there's going to be the opening up of um, walk-in vaccine clinics this weekend. So the vaccine program really, really um, is working well in this country at the moment. So, so that's very positive. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of uh, debate here and controversy about um, those that are actually classified as having COVID in hospital. Um, a medic was claiming, I believe at the weekend, that in some particular hospital, that many of those who are deemed statistically as being in hospital with COVID, uh, technically correct, but they came into hospital with other issues, broken leg, whatever, and picked up COVID in the hospital setting. So, you know, the, the stats would certainly appear to be exaggerating the real rate of infection in the population. Um, I think there is there there is a much greater le- air of uh, confidence amongst many people at the moment. You know, people are being allowed to go to matches again. Indoor dining, thankfully, has resumed, albeit not without massive controversy on a number of different fronts. Uh, but there is there is a sense that there is more normality returning to life, uh, which is very very good because. I've spoken about this uh, with great emotion, I think, over a number of podcasts, but the sort of mental health um, issues that COVID has caused are quite dramatic, particularly in young people. So it is really good to see um, a sense of normality returning here. And let's hope it does continue. And I think the only way you can actually guarantee um, and with any certainty this um, persistence of normality is... um, just getting as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Agreed. And and of course, the non-emergence of new variants. I'll conclude by just sharing some anecdotes I've had. I've had occasion to speak with a lot of younger people recently about all of this. And some of them feel quite strongly, I must say. And to summarise some of those conversations, these younger people are saying, pointing the finger at me, I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm trying not to take it too personally. They're saying that you, the older generation, the boomer generation, You've pulled the ladder up behind you with respect to house prices. You've pulled the ladder up behind you with respect to jobs. You've pulled the ladder uh, up behind you with respect to pensions. And now that you've taken 18 months of our lives away from us, supposedly one of the best times of our lives, again, for your benefit, not ours, because healthy young people typically are not made very ill by this disease, um, that's one ladder too many. And if you if you continue 
down this road of pulling ladders up behind you, don't be, a, don't be surprised if we pick up our pitchforks. So on that <laughs> um, somewhat scary note, I think we'll leave that till uh, next time, Jim, for a discussion of the younger generation, because I think we, we, we do need to explore that a little bit further. You can empathize. Welcome back and um, see you next time. Thank you very much, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 